Well, God's had a theme for us these last few weeks, and uh, I don't always tell uh, stories or have long analogies, but for the third week in a row, the Lord has me uh, have another uh, short story. You guys okay with that? This is one that I really, it was on my heart actually even last Sunday, but I feel like I needed to bring last Sunday's word and last Sunday's story in line. Everything's in line, so this will build upon that. But I just want to just say this. <clears throat> we are clay in the Lord's hands. We are clay. Everybody, I want you to say that out loud. I'm clay. You know, as much as we know who we are in Christ, as much as we know every revelation of our reality here, that we're human and he's God, with every single day, the more we learn it, really, the more I realize we don't know anything. Who has come to that conclusion? The closer we get to him, the more we think we know him. I was just thinking today, I've been preaching for some time now, uh, and that's been a rather new thing for my life as far as proportionally, but there's a good amount of sermons in there, and I was just thinking this morning, man, I, if I ever had to go like on an interview and like put to the test, I'd look like such a fool, because as much as I know God's word, his word is so big, and God is so big, that I would, I feel like I, need, I would need my answer key right there with me, I would need to know the questions beforehand and do my research. I know where to find it. I know his word, but you put me on the spot. It's like the closer we get to him, the more we know him, the more we realize how big he is and how great, how, just how great and grand his message, how big really the gospel is and like what God is doing and what he's up to. And, and um, it says this in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. It says, how foolish can you be? He is the potter, and he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say of the one who made it, he didn't make me. Does a jar ever say the potter who made me is stupid? It says in Isaiah 45, 9, uh, something similar. It says, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? How terrible it would be for a newborn baby said to its father, why was I born? Or if it said to its mother, why did you make me this way? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and your Creator. Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? I am the one who made the earth and created people to live on it. And with my hands I stretched out the heavens, and all the stars are at my command. Man, the bigness of God. The small littleness. He calls us a, a clay pot. You know, we're just a clay pot that he's working in. And, and clay, he uses this analogy because clay 
doesn't even have the ability to argue <laughs> with the maker. It's not even on the same level. You know, many times, and this is what happens, we get closer and closer and closer and closer to the Lord, and what can happen is that a person can actually stop seeking God, stop praying, stop reading the word, because they assume that they know it all or that they've arrived. And what we need to realize, every single day till the day we die, we already died in Christ in our spirit, but we're going to die in this human body, right? Is that we are just clay, and we are the work of his hands, and that every single breath that I have is a gift from God, and therefore, as a true servant of Christ and a true son, I want those breaths to be submitted to him. Amen. Amen. I just was blown away. You know, I knew that, and the Lord just spoke to me, you're clay, and I knew those verses, and I went, when I read them again afresh, and I just thought, wow, Lord, you're so big, you're so great, you're so merciful to us. And the Bible says that, and I love that the Bible has themes. Don't you love that? From Genesis to Revelation, you can really find God's thread, right? If all these different stories and different characters and different pictures that God gives us, but there's like this common thread of the Holy Spirit that weaves it all together. And what's interesting is, is yes, we're just a clay pot. Yes, we're just clay in his hands. But the Bible says, right, earthen vessels. Jeannie named her business after that, that earthen vessel, right? We're just an earthen vessel, but what's inside that vessel is the oil of the Lord, is the Spirit of God. God himself, the Bible says, it's just clay. I mean, it's just clay. It's just dirt, but God breathed his Spirit into us. So what an amazing gift that God has given us. And... We need to recognize that we're just clay, but also recognize the significance of what this clay is, that God had a purpose for this thing. And in fact, uh, Paul uh, talks about how, and we know the verses right there in Corinthians, he talks about our weakness actually is made perfect when we get to the point where we have no strength left, we can't do anything, work, I'm, I have no ability, I'm no one, I'm nothing. If I think I am, the Lord crushes me down so that I realize again that I'm not. And the Bible says that that place, Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus begins to shine. Even we've been talking about the fires, going through the fires, going through the trials. Don't forget that when they heated up the fire seven times, the point where flesh was consumed, right? They tried to, the servants for, the, for Nebuchadnezzar tried to put them in without getting killed, but it was the point, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fire was heated up seven times. So the point of weakness, the point where the flesh, the Bible says that as they put them in, the fire was so hot that they died. It was the point of death. But the Bible says when you can get to that point of death, that place of death, that's when Jesus shows up. The very place where the flesh cannot live is the exact place where Jesus shines the most. That's when he said, I see a fourth man in that fire. 
And this is what God is doing. Maybe he's doing it in your life, or maybe you can go back and remember a season in your life, and maybe God's preparing you for another season in your life so we can all relate to the trials and tribulations and the fires because God is refining his church. He's refining his people constantly. And ultimately, what that refining does is it shows us our weakness not to condemn us and to hurt us and to punish us, right? The teacher doesn't test the child so that they can show them how stupid they are. The teacher tests the child to show the weaknesses to improve upon. Amen. So the Lord shows us our weakness not to show us that, oh, and we just, we just sit there in our sorrow and say, oh, Lord, I'm so filthy. I'm so dumb. I'm so weak. But we just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing my weaknesses so that I have to rely on you. So that then Jesus begins to shine brighter in you. Amen. The Bible also says in the book of Romans chapter 1, it says, Paul said, Romans 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God, which means set apart, your translation might say, same thing here, chosen by God, he's set apart, sanctified, to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. What Paul realized as well, that's why he could talk about his weakness, talk about relying on Christ, is he realized that he was a slave of Christ Jesus. I want you to say this out loud. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. You know how much right a slave has? Zero. You know what right the slave has to complain? <laughs> you know what the slave owner does to the slave when the slave doesn't do what the slave was told to do? Paul said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Let's just get it out there. Romans 1, 1. Before we just move on, before we even get into what I'm about to tell you, I just want you to realize something. And he goes on in chapter 6, he says, uh, in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 14, he said, sin is no longer your master. Everybody say master. That's going to be a key word. I always give you the key words for our sermons. See, we had a master, and it was called sin. And the puppet master, everybody say puppet master, right? The puppet master dangled sin between, in front of Eve, right? The puppet master uses sin for one purpose. All that it did is, it's just one purpose. It just separates us from God. We get into shame, right? They went and they hid themselves, and they, and they were afraid to see God. And sin should do that. The, the thing is about sin is that's what it should do. It should make us ashamed of God because then we realize we need the blood of Christ. We need the redemption of God. We need the grace and the forgiveness of God. Okay, so that is doing its purpose. But we were never, ever meant to be under its bondage. We had a master. The master is the Lord. God was our master, but we gave our rights. We became a slave, the Bible says, to sin when we decided to give in to it. So the Bible says, you are no longer a slave to sin. It's no longer your master. 
Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Verse 15, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible because it says, does that mean because we have God's grace that we can continue to sin? We've got God's grace. Sin doesn't matter anymore. His grace covers me. I've been redeemed, past, present, and future. But then Paul says something that we all should be reminded of constantly because we must realize that sin is not uh, stealing from a bank. It's not just murder. But sin is anything, even the most fine, minute deviation from God's perfect plan and will for your life. We just don't realize that, right? We, we take the big sins and we put them up on pillars, and those are the things you don't do. But then the little stuff, the times where, you know, the Lord's dealing with things in your heart, right? And the Lord's like, I want you to be kind to this person, and you're rude because you feel like you're justified. And it doesn't seem like that's equal to murdering someone. And it's exactly the same thing to the Lord. And the Bible says that we have God's grace. Thank God for that. We just, I thank him for his grace every single day. I mean, moment by moment, I thank God for his grace. But it says we cannot go on sinning because then it's our master. Because it says, verse 16, don't you realize that you become the slave? Everybody say the slave. You become the slave of whatever you Choose, everybody say choose. This is the key word, choose. I want you to say that word out loud, choose. The Bible says clearly here in Romans 6 that you have a choice. Say, I have a choice. The Bible says I have a choice to basically, let's just sum it up and make it real simple here, to obey God or not. He says, you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. See, you don't start living righteous, and that's obedience. You choose firstly to obey, and righteous living comes out of it. If I obey God, if I truly believe him and I truly want to obey him, the righteous living just comes naturally. Who has seen God do that in your life? Where you don't have to try to be righteous in an area. You just are changed. Your DNA, your way of thinking, your mind is supernaturally changed because you are submitted to the Lord. He says, thank God, verse 17. Once, everybody say once, I was a slave. Right? Because that's past tense. We are not slaves to sin. We are God's children who have chosen to obey, we've made a choice to obey him. And because of that, we have a new master. Say, I have a new master. He says, so you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. 
We are a slave to the Lord. Now, I love what he says here. Verse 19, he says something so interesting. He says, because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. And what he's trying to say is, it's so much greater and deeper. How do I put it into human terms? Jesus, the Bible says, was submitted to the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, was in submission to the Father. He had a free will to do what he wanted to do. We know that because he prayed. First of all, he was tempted by Satan, right? So he had a choice. If it's a temptation, it was a choice. And then when he's in the garden, he goes to the Father and he prays to the Father but then sums up his prayers, if it's not going to be another way, if I have to do this cross, if this is the way, then thy will be done. Which means he had uh, uh, a, uh, I mean, to put it, I mean, we can't even imagine what he was going through, but a, uh, a war going on inside of even him. Even Jesus was like, I know what this is going to be. I know what I'm about to face. And so... Even Jesus, the Son of God, was still asking the Lord, is there a way, is there another way? After all of this and 33 years of preparation and on this earth, and I know what I'm here for, I've already told them and I preached them, but Lord, is there another way? And he submitted to the Father. And so Paul says, it's a, I'm calling you a slave because I, you have freedom, but we need to understand it that you really don't have freedom. You're free, but you're really not free. You can choose to obey, but the Bible calls it in other translations a bondservant, right? And that was somebody who willingly became a slave. This is if you came and said, I will be your slave. That's a bondservant. That means I've made the choice. I'm going to be a slave to you. And this is what has happened to the Lord. You need to realize Romans 6, it's so much greater and deeper, so don't what he's trying to say is don't get your mind focused on human slavery and think, man, that's how God treats us. It's just a, a, an illustration. But get the, get the picture in your, in your mind that I am not free. Just say it out loud. I'm not free. I have freedom, but I'm not free to do what I want. Wow. You have freedom. In fact, I... <laughs> We're going to look. The most freedom you can have is in the most constrained place in God. If you want freedom, let God constrain you. Wow. If you want to truly be free, then learn to be a slave. Who has learned in your life when, and Genius actually talked about this many times at Bible studies throughout the years that you might even, there might even be hatred in your heart towards a person, but you, like a slave, force yourself to pray for them and love them, even though initially you don't, you don't feel like they deserve your prayers right now or your love or your grace, but you force yourself into that position. It's not even willing. I mean, it's willing because you're doing it, but 
You don't really want to do it in your will, but you have submitted your will to the Lord because you believe his word greater than your emotions and your feelings. And what happens? Suddenly, she's talked about the testimony of it. Days go by, and actually what happens is, is you actually, not only do you not hate the person anymore, but now compassion and even love starts to grow towards those people. And this is what the Lord is trying to say to us here through Paul in Romans. He says, previously you let yourself, everybody say let. See, because we try to say that we didn't have a choice, and, and then some say that we don't have a choice. In fact, in Romans is where we, you know, Peter said about Paul, he said, Paul's words are hard to understand, and people take them out of context and twist them and turn them. So you have to really read Paul's words carefully, but he says it very clearly here. He says that you chose to become a slave, and now you've made the choice to become a slave to Christ. And he says, so now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. The path to holiness, to the path to righteousness. Now, you have to understand, this is the thing about God and his kingdom. I've talked about this before. I've used this analogy. If I told you and tried to describe a baseball game to you, and I said to you, a pitcher throws the ball to the catcher, is that a lie or is that the truth? Is that a lie or is that the truth? That's the truth, right? Okay, but now I said to you, a guy runs from first base to second base, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Those are two separate things. And now I said, you know, people are in the stands, and they're cheering, and you're just like, what? I thought you told me a guy throws a ball from... We're talking about a, game, a big game here, a big event, a baseball game, but there are pieces, and, and, we and we have to be careful. Jesus on the cross and his blood shed for us, and us being a slave to Christ are two parts to these, this big picture of truly being a son, son or daughter of God. One does not negate the other. I am not negating his grace and his free gift because I have to submit and choose to follow him and choose to suffer in him. It does not change his free grace and his free gift and his blood and his righteousness. By me choosing to become a slave, and this is what we've been talking about uh, in these last couple of weeks about the really being a mature Christian, deeper Christian, that we're not just on this earth for ourselves, but it is for a purpose, for God's purpose, to further his kingdom. It does not mean that I'm making myself holy. God is still doing it. But it means I have chosen to obey. I still made that choice. God did not make me. He certainly compelled me. <laughs> God has a way of compelling you to a direction and, and sadly, I've seen people reject his compelling them, right? Who has seen that? And it breaks your heart. And they even followed him for a season, like the Bible says of the seed, and then hard times come, and the seed, the short root system, they wither and they dry and they leave him. And it's incredibly sad. 
But we must realize there is a path to being holy, and there is a path to righteousness, and it is truly to be in a human term, it's greater than that, but just to read, to read Paul's words here in Romans, human, to, for our human mind to get it, is to be a slave to God. That means that I have surrendered every single right. I have surrendered all of my time. I have surrendered even, you know, even my breath that I'm breathing is from my master. I owe him every single one. And so it says, when you were slaves to sin, verse 20, you were free from the obligation to do right, and what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom, but now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. How many times is he going to say the word slaves here in Romans? He's like, just in case you didn't get it, I said it once, but I need to keep saying it here. You're free, he says. How many times does he say free in the same sentence of slave? Doesn't make sense in our humanity, does it? You're free, but you are a slave of God. Now, do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life through christ jesus our lord amazing isn't it isn't god's word amazing the bible says in second timothy are we doing all right i'm going to read one more chunk of scripture then i want to read you a small story here I can't promise that I'll read one more chunk of scripture. I'm going to intend to. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says, Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who would be able to pass them on to others. And your suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life. How that sounds very familiar to what we just read in Romans 6, doesn't it? We're not civilians. You know what a civilian is? Civilian, well, a civilian is everybody in this room right now, but a civilian is free to come and go and do. But a soldier is not free, are they? They have given over their rights for either a time being or for a career. Here's my rights. I'm even got, I've even got my name printed on a, on a dog tag. I mean, this is, yeah, this is proving that, I mean, if, they, if I do pass away in battle, here's some proof of life, something I can bring back. But it's also, it's a, literally a stamp. We own you. It's a stamp on you that you are not your own anymore. You are a product of our uh, grueling process and trying. And when you are finished with the process, you are a machine for us to use for the benefit of the people. Amen. 
So he says, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them, and athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. He goes on and says, in verse 20, in a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay. There's your clay again. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are used for everyday use. He says, if, everybody say if. Who knows that the word if is conditional? Everybody say if is conditional. It does not change the grace of God. It does not change the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is prompting me. Jesus shed his blood freely. His blood, I receive it. I received it because I said, I, as the Bible says, believe. So I made the choice. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. That was me that did it. I believed in my heart. Confessed with my mouth. Then the Holy Spirit began to prompt me in areas. And I said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. When I said, no, Lord, I felt the pain of those answers to him. And when I said, yes, Lord, I felt the pain of the fire that we've been talking about, but I came out on the other side pure. And it says, if you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. You will be clean. Everybody say clean. And it says, and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. The Amplified Classic says in verse 21, it says, So whoever cleanses himself from what is unclean and separates himself from contact with contaminating and corrupting influences will then himself be a vessel set apart and useful for honorable and noble purposes, consecrated and profitable to the master, fit and ready for any good work. God is the master, and we are clay, we are slaves, we are soldiers, which means in all those analogies, we don't have rights. We have surrendered our rights. We had a facade of right. The Bible says that he puts rain, rain comes down right on the unrighteous and the righteous. There's a facade of freedom in this earth and in this world, and when I don't want to become part of God's kingdom. I'm not ready to submit to God yet because I have some things I want to do first, right? Remember that lie? But you know what? That, lie, that was a lie from the pit of hell that gave you the facade of freedom. But we realized we were not free. We were slaves. We were slaves to that sin, and we become a slave to God in contrast and gain the freedom that we really craved. And so the Bible says, really, that he is a master and really, if you look here in Timothy, it says, if you keep yourself pure, which is conditional, that means that's a choice. That doesn't mean I'm going to be able to do it. It means I'm going to stay submitted to him. And every time that um, I wander or waver, I let the Holy Spirit tell me, and I listen, and then it keeps me right, and it keeps us on the right path. Come on, Romans 8, right? The Holy Spirit is pleading for you. Right? He's praying for you. He's pleading for you. He's 
pulling your, your spirit, right? You know that, right? You're feeling tugged in areas and pushed and pulled by God in areas that hurts, but he's doing it for your good. So then you'll be, then the master will come and say, here's the utensil that I was looking for. It's not like the rest. It's not like the rest of the world. You know, God is holy. Sometimes we misunderstand the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came and he dwelt with the sinners and, and hung around them, we misunderstand the holiness of God and really the greatness of God. God is still who he is. In fact, God is so holy. You guys know this, but I'll say it anyway, that the high priest, when he would go into the most holy of holies, they tied a rope around his ankles with a bell on it. And if he had an issue in his life that he was unaware of and he dropped dead in there, no one else could go in there to get him, so they would drag him out with the rope. That's how holy God is. When Jesus came and shed his blood on the cross, Jesus did not change God's nature and character. What Jesus did was he tore the veil. He gave us entrance into that most holy of holies, but it did not change who God is. And the only reason we can stand before God is because we are under the blood of Jesus. But the Bible gives us a very strong warning that says, do not trample on the blood of Jesus. And why is it telling us that? That's basically looking at the grace of God and thinking it's no big deal. God's grace. Thank you, Lord. I just come and go as I please into his holy of holies and just come and ask him request we were just joking my cat i've talked about my cat before but my cat is so funny because she wants to get her affection in her time i don't know if all cats are like this i've heard female cats are like this but she comes and she brushes herself against your leg her legs if i dare to touch her though she meows at me Feed me, though. She'll come and whine, and she'll keep rubbing her legs until I feed her. My kitty litter needs to be changed. She'll let us know. But God forbid I want to spend five minutes with her. She's thinking, I just spent time with you. I just gave you a few brushes of the leg. And, you know, I was, I was laughing about it just this morning, and I, and I was just cut to my heart. And I thought, that's exactly what we do to God. We treat God like he's our master, like he works for us. We don't realize we're in the house. Literally, my cat lays around for 23 and a half hours a day. She has no responsibilities except just to go from sleeping spot to sleeping spot. And all I want from her is literally just one cuddle. You know, that's all that God really asks of us sometimes. I just want you to spend some time with me, and we're like, God, I'm busy. And he's thinking, like, I'm thinking about my cat. Because when she runs off, like, I don't have time to be pet. I'm thinking, what are you, where are you going? What do you have to do? And God's looking at us in this little ant farm called Earth. We're running to go build our little castles and kingdoms. And he's like, where are you going? Where are you going? We need to recognize the seriousness and the highness of God. Amen. If I don't read you this story now... It's going to be way late, so I'm going to read you a story right now, okay? And I'm going to read it fast, uh, so just try to pay attention. And uh, if you can't get it, I can get it printed out for you, and also I can uh, get you a copy. Uh, 
through uh, email or something like that as well. But uh, let's just quickly, this is called The Harness of the Lord, and it was by someone named Bill Britton, something that the Lord had showed him, and he saw this vision and says, On a dirt road in the middle of a wide field stood a beautiful carriage, something in the order of a stagecoach, but all edged in gold with beautiful carvings. It was pulled by six large chestnut horses, two in the lead, two in the middle, and two in the rear, but they were not moving. They were not pulling the carriage, and I wondered why. Then I saw the driver underneath the carriage, on the ground, on his back, just behind the last two horses. He was working on something between the front wheels of the carriage, and I thought, my, he is in a dangerous place. For if one of those horses kicked or stepped back, they could kill him. Or if they decided to go forward or got frightened somehow, they would pull the carriage right over him. But he didn't seem afraid for he knew that those horses were disciplined and would not move till he told them to move. The horses were not stamping their feet nor acting restless. And though there were bells on their feet, the bells were not tinkling. There were pom-poms on their harness over their heads, but the pom-poms were not moving. They were simply standing still and quiet, waiting for the voice of the master. As I watched the harnessed horses, I noticed two young colts coming out of the open field, and they approached the carriage and seemed to, to say to the horses, come and play with us. We have many fine games. We will race with you. Come catch us. And with that, the colts kicked up their heels, they flicked their tails, and they raced across the open field. But when they looked back and saw the horses were not following, they were puzzled. They knew nothing of the harness and could not understand why the horses did not want to play. So they called to them, why do you not race with us? Are you tired? Are you too weak? Do you not have strength to run? You are much too solemn. You need more joy in life. But the horses answered not a word, nor did they stamp their feet or toss their heads, but they stood quiet and still waiting for the voice of the master. Again, the cults called to them, Why do you stand so in the hot sun? Come over here in the shade of this nice tree. See how green the grass is. You must be hungry. Come and feed with us. It is so green and so good. You look thirsty. Come and drink one of our many streams of cool water. But the horses answered them not so much as a glance, but stood still, waiting for the command to go forward with the king. And then the scene changed, and I saw lariat nooses fall around the necks of the two cults, and they were led off to the master's corral for training and discipline. How sad they were as the lovely green fields disappeared, and they were put into the confinement of the corral. With its brown dirt and high fence, the cults ran from fence to fence seeking freedom, but found that they were confined to this place of training. And then the trainer began to work on them with his whip and his bridle. What a death for those who had been all their lives accustomed to such a freedom. They could not understand the reason for this torture, this terrible discipline. 
What crime had they done to deserve this? Little did they know of the responsibility that was to be theirs when they had submitted to the discipline and learned to perfectly obey the master and finish their training. All they knew was that this processing was the most horrible thing they had ever known. One of the cults rebelled under the training and said, This is not for me. I like my freedom, my green hills, my flowing streams of fresh water. I will not take any more of this confinement, this terrible training. So he found a way out, jumped the fence, and ran happily back to the meadows of grass. I was astonished that the master let him go and went not after him, but he devoted his attention to the remaining cult. The cult, though he had the same opportunity to escape, decided to submit his own will and learn the ways of the master. The training got harder than ever, but he was rapidly learning more and more how to obey the slightest wish of the master and to respond even the quietness of his voice. And I saw that there had been no training, no testing. There would have been neither submission nor rebellion from either of the cults. For in the field, they did not have the choice to rebel or submit. They were sinless in their innocence. But when brought to the place of testing and training and discipline, then was made manifest the obedience of one and the rebellion of the other. And though it seems safer not to come to the place of discipline because of the risk of being found rebellious, yet I saw that without this, there could be no sharing of his glory, no sonship. Finally, this period of training was over. Was he now rewarded with his freedom and sent back to the fields? Oh, no. But a greater confinement than ever now took place as a harness dropped about his shoulders. Now he found there was not even the freedom to run about the small corral, for in the harness he could only move where and when his master spoke. And unless the master spoke, he stood still. The scene changed, and I saw the other colt standing on the side of the hill, nibbling at some grass. Then across the fields, down the road, came the king's carriage, drawn by six horses. With amazement, he saw that in the lead, on the right side, was his brother colt, now made strong and mature, on the good corn in the master's stable. He saw the lovely pom-poms shaking in the wind. He noticed the glittering gold-bordered harness about his brother, and he heard, that the beautiful tinkling, he heard the beautiful tinkling of the bells on his feet, and envy came into his heart. He complained to himself, why has my brother been so honored, and I am neglected? They have not put bells on my feet, nor pom-poms on my head. The master has not given me the wonderful responsibility of pulling his carriage, and he has not put me about the gold harness. Why have they chosen my brother instead of me? And by the Spirit, the answer came back to me as I watched, because one submitted to the will and discipline of the master, and one rebelled. Thus has one been chosen, and the other set aside. Then I saw great drought sweep across the countryside, and the green grass became dead, dry, brown, and brittle. The little streams of water dried up. They stopped flowing, and there was only a small muddy puddle. 
here and there, and I saw the little colts. I was amazed that it never seemed to grow or mature. As he ran here and there across the fields, looking for fresh streams and green pastures, finding none, still he ran, seemingly in circles, always looking for something to feed his famished spirit. But there was a famine in the land, and the rich green pastures and flowing streams of yesterday were not to be had. And one day the colt stood on the hillside on weak and wobbly legs, wondering where to go next to find food and how to get strength to go. It seemed like there was no use for good food and flowing streams were a thing of the past, and all the efforts to find more only taxed his waning strength. Suddenly, he saw the king's carriage coming down the road, pulled by the six horses, and he saw his brother, fat and strong, his muscles rippling, sleek and beautiful, with much grooming. His heart was amazed and perplexed, and he cried out, My brother, where do you find the food to keep you strong and fat in these days of famine? I have run everywhere in my freedom, searching for food, and I find none. Where do you... In your awful confinement, find food in this time of drought. Tell me, please, for I must know. And then the answer came back from a voice filled with victory and praise. In my master's house, there is a secret place in the confining limitations of his stables where he feeds me by his own hand and his granaries never run empty and his well never runs dry. And with this, the Lord made me to know that in the day when people are weak and famished in their spirits, in the time of spiritual famine, that those who have lost their own wills and have come into the secret place of the Most High, into the utter confinement of His perfect will, will have plenty of corn of heaven and never-ending flow of fresh streams, revelation by His Spirit. There's an amazing interpretation you can go and read in your own time if you'd like, but just quickly, the interpretation, I think, is really self-evident in the story itself, that if we realize that God is actually doing for our good, our confinement, our submission to him, our, our ending of our wills, it's only a facade that the world has freedom, but then God brings them into the kingdom. That's the corral, right? The corral is the kingdom of God. It's someone coming from the world into the kingdom and realizes that this isn't for me because they enjoyed the freedom of the world, and then they thought they could bring that freedom into God's kingdom and didn't realize that that's not how God does things. But it wasn't to make us suffer, but it was ultimately for our good, That when the world and the believers that decided the world was better for them or to live in some sort of worldly Christianity, when they begin to starve because there is nothing, nothing feeds them, nothing fills them, we in submission to the Lord, even though it was hard to our flesh, we now realize that I love when it says in that story that the master feeds the horse by his hand, literally puts to his mouth himself. He doesn't have to go and look. The master feeds him personally. Isn't it amazing? And so let's just pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you for your word. And I thank you, God, for giving us the revelation of your love and your grace and your mercy. And that when we submit to you, Lord God, 
Just as you submitted to the Father and the disciples submitted to you, we submit, and I thank you, Lord, that in that submission is real life. That's true freedom. And we just thank you, Lord. We just surrender every emotion. Today, right now, in this, in this church, right in this moment, we just surrender every hurt and every pride and every weight. We just take it all, Lord, and we submit it to you right now. We're not going to buck against you any longer. We're not going to fight your reins any longer. We may not like the process, but, Lord, we look and we see that there is, Lord, there is a purpose ahead of us. And if we will submit, you have a plan and a purpose for us. And we just thank you, Jesus. Amen.